For those who have been here, you know we're in a series where we've been in the Gospel of Matthew looking at the life of the Master, and we find ourselves nearing the end of the greatest sermon ever preached. We've been looking at what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And what Jesus is dealing with, we're told in chapter 5 that he gives this sermon, he gathers, and it's his disciples that come to him. And he is focused on his followers, on those who place their faith in him, and he's describing to them what does kingdom living look like? What does it mean to be a, a kingdom person? And he's speaking to them about a difference. A difference of outward religion, which the religious leaders of Jesus' day focused. They focused on the outward. And Jesus is speaking of outward religion versus an inward heart transformation. We mentioned the last several weeks that what Jesus is truly doing is heart surgery. And heart surgery is something that is a little bit painful and a little bit difficult. But that is what Jesus is doing. And, and one of the hard parts, one of the difficult parts of what Jesus is speaking of is you can have a person who comes to worship, raises their hands, praises God. They come faithfully week after week. But there is, is only an outward religion just for show. And that's very different from an inward heart transformation, a heart that's been turned from stone to flesh that Jesus has, has softened. So Jesus is not focusing so much on behaviors, but the reason behind our behaviors. Now we're going to, in the passage today, we're transitioning from the end of the body of the sermon into the closing. And this sermon closes with a great deal of urgency. It's a actually very heavy ending as he closes out this passage. And here's always the challenge for the, as we listen to the Sermon on the Mount. We want to think of how it applies to others. Those seated next to this or someone we know, we want to think, wouldn't it be great if they knew this? But God has a message for you. So as we listen to this, as we hear the words of Jesus, realize they're being spoken to his followers, to his people. This is for you. So let's hear the word of our Lord Jesus. We'll be in Matthew chapter 7, just three verses today, verse 12 through 14. If you have your Bibles, turn there. But if you would, please stand. Let's stand for the reading of God's good word. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Let's hear the word of our Lord, Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, 
Praise be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> God, your word does declare, declares that all men are like grass and all our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. Lord, may this be the word that is faithfully proclaimed today. We acknowledge that unless you speak, nothing of any eternal significance is spoken here today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, in our first verse today, Jesus is going to summarize the heartbeat behind the entire Sermon on the Mount. He's going to pull the whole thing together, but he not only summarizes the Sermon on the Mount, he summarizes the entire implications of the Old Testament. So this is a summary verse that he gives us. We've mentioned it in the last few weeks. We commonly call it the Golden Rule. And it's a rule that we look at that is quite simple on the surface. It appears very, very easy. We often paraphrase it this way, do to others as you would have them do to you. Seems very, very simple. Yet what we're going to see is that the golden rule is actually far more complex and more difficult and more convicting than we might initially uh, think. Now he starts with this word in verse 12. So, simple word, could also be translated therefore. What he's saying is in light of everything you've just heard, in light of the entirety of this sermon that Jesus is giving, here's our response. Whatever you wish others would do to you, you do to them also. Now Jesus is pulling us back into the whole of the sermon. He starts the sermon with, a, with an introduction in the Beatitudes, and then he walks through the law, but how our heart is to interpret it. What we've seen most recently, Jesus has been back and he said, where your heart is, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That was a big verse in this sermon because he's revealing to you, whatever your treasure, that's what your heart's going to be attached to. And he's doing heart surgery. He's looking and saying, hey, your hearts, your actions can even be right actions. But if your heart's not right, then you're still in a troubling place. So he's pulling us into the heart, looking at the heart. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And he gives us a measure of how to figure out where our treasure is. He goes into that after, do not be anxious about anything. I'll tell you, that's a great way of seeing what your heart treasures. What is it that you worry most about? You see, none of us are immune from worry. Some of us worry more than others. Some of us are quick to worry. Others are slow to worry. But the reality is, is we all experience worry and anxiety. And it often reveals something about your heart. I'll tell you a common thing that my wife and I worry about. We worry about our children. And I think there's some good and right concern that any parent should have for their children. That's a good thing to be concerned for your children. You're entrusted to them, so you need to be concerned. But there's a point where your worry for them, they become more the treasure than God himself if you're not careful. Jesus speaks of possessions. Because often possessions become the thing that we worry most about and become our greatest treasure. So there's a number of things that can become our great treasure. And here's the difficult part. Often your treasure 
that takes the place of God is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But the only thing that would make it negative is the fact that it's taken the place of God. So he says, our anxiety, our worry shows us that. Now he then goes into a section, don't be judgmental. Don't be taking the superior attitude toward one another where you're judging one another in that manner. Now what do we, how do we often judge people? Again, what you treasure is often how you judge people. So back to my example, I treasure my children. If I treasure them too greatly above God, then I start looking at how everybody else is raising their children. And go, they're not raising their children like I am. I, I, I'm doing a better job. And I start to be judgmental and think I'm superior. If your treasure's money, then you look at the money that everybody else has and you go, well, I'm in a better spot than they are. And you start to be judgmental. So whatever your treasure is, you worry about it, and then you begin to judge others by it. And Jesus says, why do you focus on the speck in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You see, we're quick to see one another's sins. It's easy to do. But we're often slow to see our own sin, the sinfulness in our heart, the sinfulness that's rooted in our flesh that separates us from God. And there's certain sin that's really easy to see. Outward sin is easy to see. But sins like jealousy, that's harder to see. Covetousness, greed, selfishness, those are harder sins to see. Gluttony, gossip, all of these sins. When we start looking, there's a huge plank in our own eye. And we often ignore the sin in our lives and pay attention to the sin in other people's eye. And Jesus is pulling us in to know, look at the plank in your own eye. Out of that, he pulls us into prayer, what we saw last week. Ask, seek, knock. And again, on prayer, ask, it'll be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it'll be given to you. Or knock and the door will be open. The idea is that which you treasure most is what you're going to pray for. So you want to know what you're treasuring most, you pray for it the most. If you desire God, if he's your greatest treasure, ask and you'll find Christ. Seek, you'll find Christ. Knock and Christ will open the door to you. So God is faithful when your treasures are in proper alignment. He is to be the great treasure. And now today, he's going to pull us into this summary statement with the golden rule. And he says, here. Whatever you wish that others would do for you, do to them also. We're going to have five points in our message today. First point is this. Jesus gives a different standard. A different standard. The standard of his day was this. Don't do evil. No evil. Rabbi Hillel was one of the famous rabbis of Jesus' day. There was a couple of rabbis that were famous in Jesus' day. Rabbi Shammai, Rabbi Hillel, and they were different ways of thinking. And everybody's debating who's right. Well, here's what Rabbi Hillel taught. He taught this. What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. So this is the rule that they had. What is hateful to you, don't do it to somebody else. Well, I don't want someone to lie to me, so I'm not going to lie to you. I don't want someone to steal from me. I'm not going to steal from you. I don't want someone to do bodily harm to me, so I will not do bodily harm to you. This was the rule of the day. No 
don't do something evil to another person. But that's all that this rule can do. All this rule produces is less evil. It restrains evil at some measure, but it doesn't produce blessing and goodness and Christ-likeness that Jesus is focusing on. No, Jesus takes this same rule of the day, but puts it in the positive. You do to others what you'd want them to do to you. It's not that you just don't not do bad things. You do good things for another person. You do to them what you would want them to do to you. And he says the word, so whatever. Whatever. This is all the ways. All the ways that you would want someone to treat you. All the ways that you would want someone to love you. All the ways that you'd want someone to encourage you, to speak to you, to care for you. That's what you're to do. This is a giant standard. This is a huge standard. We shouldn't look at the standard and go, easy, got it. Jesus has summarized it, but it's enormous. It's a massive standard. And Jesus says this, for this is the law and the prophets. That phrase, law and the prophets, when you see it in the New Testament, it's referring to the Old Testament. The law was the first five books of Moses, called the Pentateuch or the Torah. The prophets was a summation of all the rest of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, this summarizes all the law and the prophets. When he starts the sermon in Matthew chapter 5, he starts it with the religious leaders. They're arrogant. Here's what you're to be, poor in spirit. What makes a person poor in spirit? I'm a sinner who is hopeless. That makes me pretty poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. What makes you mourn? I'm going to mourn that my sin has separated me from God. And then we become meek. We don't become arrogant like the religious leaders. We become meek and lowly. And he says, out of that you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 says, begins to speak of the law and prophets. So the main body of the text starts with the law and prophets. It ends here with the law and prophets. He's showing how the Old Testament, how the religious leaders had misunderstood what God was calling us to do. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament. And Jesus boils it down to one. If you can do this one, and you can do it perfectly, then we don't have to worry about the rest, because you're going to keep them as well. He's making it simple, but yet it's still very complex. Jesus, during the last week of his life, they asked him a question. They're trying to trap him in a question. So they're trying to get this question where they can trap him and then crucify him. And they say, what's the greatest command? That was a big debate. The religious leaders, they were baiting, what's the most important commandment? You see, there weren't only 613 biblical commands. They had added 10,000 extra biblical commands to that. So everybody's going, how do we keep all these commands? What's the most important? And Jesus answers in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is always seeking to make it easier for us to understand. 
You know, some people can look at a list of rules and go, kept them all. But their heart can be far from God. And Jesus is pulling it in. He's doing heart surgery, looking at our heart. You've got to get the heart right here. He's seeking to make it simple. In Galatians 5.14, it says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Standard here is perfection. Perfectly love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Perfectly love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it seems simple, but it should convict us all that none of us are doing this perfectly. That in all our striving and in all our effort to do this, we can't do this in and of ourselves, in our flesh. We can only do this as Christ works in and through us. The rich young ruler comes and asks Jesus this same sort of question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the question is faulty. There's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. It's all been done by Jesus. But he comes and asks that question, and Jesus asks him about the commands. He says, I've kept them all. But Jesus says, there's one thing. One thing you treasure above God, your earthly possessions. You've got to keep God as the treasure. And the rich young ruler walks away very sad. He did not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for each of us, That should be very convicting. Look at your life. Do you love God with all your heart? With all of your mind or your thoughts always headed Godward and you think of Him at every moment and you're always thinking of Him in light of others. Do you love Him with all your soul and with all that you are, all your strength? See, none of us do this. None of us perfectly love our neighbor as ourself. In James uh, 4.17 it says this, so whoever knows the right thing to do and, and fails to do it, him it is sin. So it's not just don't do evil. It's if you, don't, if you know the good that you're supposed to do and you don't do it, that is sin. So you know you're supposed to do something good for another person, you don't do it. He's saying this is sin. This is to be convicting for all of us. But here's the problem. Sometimes we don't know the good thing to do for another person. Sometimes even the good that we would do for another person They don't receive it that way. One of the things I love about living here is having coffee. Every meal, when the meal is over, we're having coffee. And I love that, unless it's too late in the evening, and then I'm like, I can't have coffee now to keep me up. But I love always having the coffee at the meals. I love the coffee ceremonies, rich, beautiful things. But I'll tell you something that that I sort of don't like about the coffee. You see, whenever someone hands me a cup of coffee, they hand me these little cups with with no handles, and the coffee's filled up absolutely as much as it can be. And they hand me the coffee, and it spills on my fingers, and it burns my fingers, and then it gets on my clothes, and I'm going, this coffee's hot, I'm burning my fingers, it's on my clothes. Why did you fill it up so much is my thought. Now some of you are going, well, if you gave me a cup of coffee, and you didn't fill it up, I would feel you didn't value me. I would feel that you didn't love me. In fact, someone after first service said, if you gave me a cup of coffee and it wasn't full, that would just be bad. No, you've got to fill it up. See, where I come from, you show somebody love by leaving this much room at the top of coffee. That way, when you pick up the cup, if it splashes, it's not spilling. It's not going to burn you. 
That's how you show love and communicate that in my culture. Here, in this culture, the cup of coffee is filled to the absolute top. And that's how you communicate love and care. I was somewhere last week, and I saw somebody take food. And they put the food in another person's mouth. And that was being very loving. They were loving them the way that they would want to be loved. And I thought, that's really beautiful. But please don't put food in my mouth. (laughs) That would not communicate love to me. I would be very awkward and uncomfortable. You would see me sort of tense up and go, okay, I don't know what to do right now. What I'm saying is the way we don't even know how to love others as ourselves. We fail to do that. We think, well, this is how I'd want to be loved, so I'm going to love them this way, but it's not the way that they want to be loved. My family likes sweets. In particular, my children like them. And I have one that when it's dinner time, what he would love to eat is cake and candy for dinner. That would be option number one, cake and candy. And I think back to when I was his age, and guess what I wanted when I was his age to eat? Cake and candy. So I'm going to love him the way that I would want to be loved and say, eat cake, eat candy. Does that sound like a good idea? (laughs) I like it. Yes, thanks for the participation. You can participate in the sermon there. Sounds like a great idea. But all of us know that letting our children eat cake and candy for dessert, meal after meal, would be bad for them. We actually wouldn't be loving them the way that we want to be loved. We want someone to love us in a way that is for our good. So here's where this gets complex. Sometimes somebody said, this is how I want to be loved. But it's not even for their own good. So we want to love people the way that we would want to be treated. And we would want something, somebody to treat us in a way that is for our own good. Do you see how we struggle with this? Do you see why this is a hard command? We're to do this perfectly. Do you see why God had to add more rules? I could tell my, my sons, love your brother. That's a simple command. That's as easy as it can get. If you love your brother, everything else will take care of itself. But sometimes I have to say, hey, quit annoying your brother. Quit pushing your brother. Quit taking things from your brother. I have to say those because don't love your brother. They don't know how to do it real well. So they need some additional help with this. Jesus boils it down as simple as he can. Yet even in the simplicity, we struggle. The golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. You know what I've realized? I need brothers and sisters in Christ to help me with this. We've been walking up to this passage for the past few months, and in the past couple weeks we've been heavily here. And as I have looked at my life, As as I've been walking through things that I'm dealing with and processing, I come to the conclusion over and over again, I have failed again to love somebody the way I'd want to be loved. I've had brothers and sisters point those things out to me. Hey, what you did there? That's not loving them the way they'd want to be loved. And my fleshly reaction to that is this to defend, you don't understand. 
to minimize. It's not a big deal. But Christ calls us to humility, to a lowly heart where we say, even in a correction from a brother or sister in Christ, even if it's not completely true, there's usually a thread of truth in it that we can grab and say, thank you, God. None of us enjoy somebody pointing out where we have failed to do this. But you need brothers and sisters in your life who love you enough and who will speak the truth to you and show you where you are failing to love others. We call them blind spots for a reason. We can't see, we miss. And I'm grateful that there are times that people will point these things out in my life. I don't like hearing it. But once I step back, I see the truth and I go, God, help me to love others better, more the way that you would have them to love me. May I repent of this, God. I see my failure in this. Now, Jesus takes us out. He ends the sermon with this. But the next thing he's going to do, he's going to walk us into the conclusion of the sermon. We'll be here for three weeks. And I want to tell you the conclusion is really hard. This is a very hard conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not hard because it's difficult to understand. We can all understand the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. What is hard is the truth that Jesus is saying. And it's so hard that here's what you're going to want to do in your flesh. You're going to want to reject it. You're going to want to minimize it. You're going to want to make it say something different than what Jesus says. I don't like this. This is where we are in Scripture. If it were up to me, I would edit this. I would change some of this. I'm not God. I have no authority to do that. The only thing I can do is seek to faithfully pronounce a word that is very difficult here. Jesus is going to end the sermon, verses 13 through 25, speaking of two gates, two roads, two trees, two houses, two foundations in this tough text. And what we see in verse 13, he says, enter by the narrow gate. Four points in this section. We'll move a little quicker here. Four points though. First thing, different entries. Jesus is going to speak of two different entries. One is narrow, one is wide. If you've ever seen, and I'm sure most of you have, the young men who push carts around Addis Ababa filled with water, maybe filled with Coke, they're taking their goods from store to store. That's been my image this week, is the, taking these carts. And often that's how we approach the gate. God, my cart is filled with good works. God, my cart is filled with lots of religious practices. Look how faithfully I attended church. God, I've served at church. God, I've traveled to other places for your name. God, I've done all these works. Look at them all. The gate is narrow. That cart full of good works and religious practices will not get through the gate. You cannot come through the gate with all of those things. And not only that, we come with a whole bunch of baggage of our sin. And we come and trying to get through this narrow gate. 
And yet our sin, we can't enter because our sin is too great. We're dragging all this sin and we can't enter through the narrow gate. But then he says, there's a wide gate. Bring all your good works through the wide gate. Bring all your past sin through the wide gate. You can bring whatever. It's easy. Come on through the wide gate. It's not a hard gate to enter. Every religion on earth outside of Christianity says, come on in through the wide gate. Bring your works, your prayers, your religious practices, whatever you've done to try to appease God and start walking down this way through the wide gate. Here's what Jesus says about himself in John uh, 10, 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and come out and find pasture. Some translation says, I am the gate. Jesus says, literally, to the narrow way, he's the door. He's the gate. That's why he says, if anybody knocks, the way will be opened. You come knocking on that door, he's going to open it. And there's a beautiful biblical image of this. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And a shepherd in Jesus' times, they would set up a, a, a rock wall like this to keep the sheep in. That way a wolf could not attack the sheep. The sheep are secure. If they come into here, they don't have to worry. They're going to be all right. That's where they go. But guess where the shepherd would place himself? Look at this next image. The shepherd would place himself at the entrance. The shepherd literally would serve as the gate. No sheep are getting in unless they come by the shepherd. The shepherd goes, I know you're mine. Come on in. You're mine. Come on in. But here comes a wolf. You're a wolf. I'm not letting you in the sheep pen. You can't come in. You see, you can see a little clearer here. The, the picture of that shepherd, Jesus says, he is the gate. No one is going to enter the narrow path unless they walk through that gate that is Jesus Christ. I was talking with a friend of mine this week and he's in ministry as well and we were talking about how we'll often ask people their testimonies, say, would you share the gospel? What is the gospel? And how tragically the majority of the time when we ask people that question, they'll share lots of other things. Well, I grew up going to church. My parents took me to church. I serve in church. I like these things. I'm very religious. They'll share all sorts of things except the one thing that is needed to enter through the gate. We go, I'm a sinner who's hopeless except for the sinless life of Christ. He took my place. That's my only hope. That's all we have. He's the gate. There is no other way. Look, look at the next thing. We see there's two different paths here. So there's two gates, narrow, wide. Now there's two paths. One is easy and one is hard. Easy path, hard path. Everybody likes an easy path. You can do whatever you want on the easy path. You can even go on the easy path and be serving, loving, helping others. And look like you're on the narrow path, but not be. Because there's only one way to come into the narrow path, and that is through Christ. All false religions are on this easy path. 
Jesus says this in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not only is he the gate, he's actually the path. The way that we go is in Christ. There is no other way. Now again, in my flesh, I want to take John 14, 6 and say, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus or being really kind, or being really nice, or being really religious, or, or, or. There is no or. No one, no one comes to the Father except through Christ. We said this isn't an easy ending. This should be heavy upon us. There is no other way, but praise God, He has provided a way in His grace and mercy through His Son, Jesus. You see, we're all walking down the easy road until someone intervenes, points us to Christ, and we walk through the narrow gate and go the way that He's shown us. You see, when you walk in the narrow way, you don't, you're not judging others because you know, I'm a sinner, and Christ has redeemed me. So you don't look down on others. Now here's the reality, there's still suffering by entering the narrow gate. He says it's hard. As a Christian, you will suffer. When people tell you that Christians don't suffer, if you're faithful, you will not suffer, that is not true scripturally. Scripturally says we will suffer, we will be persecuted, and many people can't make their way to the gate because they trip over persecution and suffering. They say, I don't want to deal with it. Why would God allow anybody to suffer? On this side of eternity, there will be suffering. Now, there's a day coming when there's no more suffering. There's no more pain. All that's gone. But until that day comes, we will have suffering in this life. It's a difficult way. It's a hard way. It's a narrow way. Look at what he says next. Two different popularities here. This is one of the things I struggle with the most. The wide gate, those who enter by it are many. The narrow gate, those who find it are few. <laughs> Come on, Jesus, can't we change that? Didn't you misspeak, Jesus? Come, come on. The, the, the ones who go on the wide gate, can't they be few? And can't it be many who come through the narrow gate? This is a hard teaching of Scripture. This shouldn't make us necessarily comfortable that we have comfort and security in our Savior Christ when we walk through that narrow gate that only we can walk through with Him. You see, Jesus says the way is hard and you will suffer, but know this, in your suffering, He is with you. There are so many here today that have come here suffering. I can say that with great confidence because I know there's suffering in life. I don't want to suffer, you don't want to suffer, but know this, Jesus one day will eliminate all the suffering. It'll be done. But until that day comes, He is with you. 
He is the way. He is present. He cares. He will be with you in the midst of the pain and the difficulty and the suffering. He's there. But there's a different popularity here. Many are on the path to destruction. Many. So Christians, those who've trusted in Christ, we will always be in the minority in this world until the day that Jesus returns. I wish it were other. Revelation 7-9. I quote this often. It's a, a verse that um, I often... This is my vision of where I go. This is the day I live for, what I long for, God. And listen, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe, from people's languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There is a day coming, church, when every nation, every people, all languages will gather before the throne worship to God. And he says it will be a great multitude that no one can number. But it'll be a multitude that come out of that few over years and years and years worshiping God. How we long for that day. But until that day comes, you haven't gone to glory yet. That day hasn't come. You're still on this side of eternity until that day comes. May we be found proclaiming to the many that there's a gate. God hasn't left you without a gate. There's a way. He hasn't left you without a way. And that gate and that way is Jesus Christ. Jesus walked the narrow path for us. You can't walk it. He walked it for you so that you could be in Him as you go. And the final thing we see, again, these are hard. There's different destinations. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Two different destinations. Destruction and life. That's where everybody's headed. Two ways, two gates, two destinations. There's not a third option. There's only two Jesus gives here. And unless a person has entered through Christ, trusted in Him, then what Scripture says is born again, a new creation, converted, they've confessed their sin, and they've thrown themselves on the mercy of Jesus, saying there is no other hope. Unless they've entered in that way, they're walking away. That leads to destruction. And as much as this makes me uncomfortable, as much as this is troubling, as much as we don't necessarily like this, we can praise God that He has made a way for us who have rebelled against Him to come to Him. And the way that you come to God is not do. It's not do more. It's He's done it. Just trust in Him. He's sufficient. Jesus is enough. He's all you'll ever need. You need nothing else in this life outside of Christ. He is enough. He will secure you. He'll be with you to the end. That's the beauty of 
what we see here now. Jesus gave the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. You know the greatest application of that is to tell a person who is walking on the wide path, hey, there's a gate. That gate is Christ. Hey, you're, you're headed the wrong direction. Hey, look to Christ. He's enough. He's sufficient. Trust in Him. He loves you. He made you. He will recreate you into His image. But as long as we carry our baggage of sin, we are headed to the wide path until we go, Christ has dealt with my sin. He is sufficient. He's enough. So church, I pray that as we go, I imagine for some of you there are people here today that you're thinking about. I've been thinking about this this week. There's people in my life, there's people in my family, there's people I know, I'm going, they're walking on a wide way that leads to destruction. God have mercy. Show them the gate that is Christ. May they walk in that. Some of you have those people in your hearts and minds that you work with, that you live near, that you serve with, that are in your family. And the most merciful way that you can love others, that you can treat others the way that you want to be treated. Christian, today, aren't you glad that at some point somebody took the risk and said, let me tell you about Jesus? You may not have wanted to hear it, but somebody told you. And because they told you, you say, thank you. Your life's different. You're now walking the narrow path. I pray that that'll be us that will do that for others. It may be a message they don't always want to hear. Maybe a message that's times hard to give. But these are the words of Jesus. There's a wide road that leads to destruction. And there's a narrow road, a narrow gate, a hard way that leads to life. And Christ has paved it. He is sufficient enough to bring you home. If you're here today and you've never professed faith in Christ, I pray the day would be the day that you choose to place your faith in Him. That you say, I'm going to trust Him. Not my religious practices. That you would acknowledge, I'm sinful. The only thing you bring to salvation is your sin. Jesus says, I've done all the work. I'll cover your sin. I took your sin to the cross. I pray that if that's you, today would be the day that you would trust the Lord. The minute I'll be up front, some of our elders and others may be up front if you want to talk or pray with somebody. And some of you, you're here today, and I want you to know this good news, Christian. Once you have entered through the gate, through Christ, He's got you. You're secure. If you're His, He's got you. He will hold you. He will keep you. You will not be lost. And that is glorious good news. As we close, we're going to close with a, a song. It's called, He Will Hold Me Fast. Now that may not be language we use a lot, hold me fast, but the idea is this. When you're in Christ... When you know that He is the way, the truth, and life, and you've trusted in Him, He's got you. He won't lose you. You're secure in Him. And we worship Him going, He's got me. He's going to get me home. 
I may stumble, I may struggle, I may suffer, I may endure persecution, but Christ will hold me fast. He's got me. And that's glorious good news. Because in this world, you're going to get beat up. You're going to suffer. And you're going to struggle. But Christ has made a way for us to be reconciled to our Father through Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you entered, you took on flesh a little over 2,000 years ago. You entered as a baby. You even made yourself, allowed yourself to be dependent upon a mother. You grew up. You lived the life dealing with the temptations that all of us would deal with. And yet sin never took a hold of you. You lived the life all of us are incapable of living. You never sinned. You perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself. You perfectly did unto others as you would have them do unto you, Lord. You did these things perfectly, never sinning. And yet, Lord, we confess that we are sinful. And our only hope is to throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ who's done the work, who's taken our sin to the cross, who's died for our sin, who's died to reconcile us to you, God. We thank you that you gave us a provision. And the provision in Christ isn't do more, serve more, be more religious, try harder. The provision of Christ, he's done it all, trust him. He's sufficient, he's enough. Lord, I know there are some here today that are hearing these words. These words have made them uncomfortable. These words, for others, have brought great comfort in knowing that they are in Christ. For others, it's brought great discomfort for their own souls. May you disturb their soul to the point that they trust Christ and know that he's sufficient. And Lord, there's some here who are troubled because Heavy on their heart is a loved one, someone they care about, who's walking down that wide path to destruction. Lord, we pray for those right now. We lift them up to you and cry out to you. Save them. Point them to the gate that is Christ. Use us as you see fit. Help us to be willing to be bold and courageous, yet kind and humble and gentle. May we love others enough that we will share with them the greatest news they could ever hear. So Lord, now as we sing, as a church, because the church is made up of believers, may we sing with great joy the reality that we are secure in you and you will hold us fast. Do your work, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.